Welcome to the podcast edition of Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and every week I explore topics related to dreams, sleep, health, culture, and consciousness. Dream Talk Radio airs every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental, California. And you can catch the live stream at www.kows.fm. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this edition of Dream Talk Radio. So while we're waiting for uh, Braun Taylor to call in, let's see if I can uh, talk about um, my connection to this book, Dark Green Religion. Um, it started when I got an email from Braun Taylor and his uh, co-editor where they were doing, uh, they were putting together an encyclopedia of religion and nature. And that was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. And they wanted to know, since I've had a, a, a business uh, selling pagan music, uh, distributing pagan music through Serpentine Music, they wanted to know if I would write a couple entries for the Encyclopedia of Religion and Nature. And of course, I said yes. And so that was kind of fun. And, and I got a little bit uh, tapped into their whole encyclopedia project, which was fascinating. A lot of people, a lot of academics and practitioners of various different things, wide, widespread all over the world, um, talking about all the intersections of religion and nature. And so when Braun contact me, contacted me and said, hey, I've got this new book out, Dark Green Religion, maybe you'd want to uh, talk about it on your radio show. I kind of jumped at the chance because, you know, this has been my milieu for years, for decades, actually, a couple decades at least. Uh, pagan spirituality, nature spirituality, whatever you want to call it, it exists. And it's this is kind of a hotbed of it all here in Northern California. So, you know, I feel like this has been sort of the, the air I've been living and breathing for many, many years. And it's really useful I think to hear somebody's who, somebody who's studied it, not just been in it and observed it, but actually studied it and tried to identify the patterns. Like, what are the patterns? What are the streams of thought that people have been pulling into their understanding of dark green religion? And what? How? Do, how do we understand all that? So, um, I think Braun has done a, an amazing, remarkable job with all of that, it, and I will talk to him more about the way he has. Uh, he has um, put that all together. So uh, I was just up in uh, British Columbia teaching at a reclaiming witch camp, and I was reading this book at the same time, and it was very interesting to, to, to think about the ways that environmentalism, radical environmentalism, nature spirituality, uh, leftist politics, all of that sort of intersects and how do we how do we conceive our 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 uh, relationship to nature? How do we work that? You know, how do we how how do we feel the sacred in nature? How do we connect to it? And uh, how do we celebrate that? Like bringing it into ritual. So we had some really uh, pretty intense, actually intense and also fascinating discussions while we were uh, while we were planning. Um, so hang on, I think this might be Braun right now. Hi, you're on cows. Is this Braun? It is. Hey. Sorry to be a little late. That's quite all right. It's just been one of those kind of mornings. This is, I was just telling people this was my first morning back from two weeks away, and I'd forgotten to bring a blank CD. And <laughs> I've forgotten all the music about dreams, so welcome. Well, I'm glad to be with you and your listeners. Great. So the, we, are, we are now talking to Braun Taylor, whose recent book is Dark Green Religion, Nature, Spirituality, and the Planetary Future. So uh, I was telling people about we had been in contact w during the time that you were putting out the Encyclopedia of Religion and Nature. Uh -huh. And that was, what, was about 10 years ago or something? Well, we may have been in contact that early. It was published in 2005. Okay. Yeah. And so maybe you could just sort of back up and, and, and let people know what your entry into, uh, you know, what the trajectory was that led you to, to publishing this book. Okay. Well, for the last 20 or more years, I've been interested in um, social movements and the uh, emotional and spiritual and ethical dimensions of them. 
um, particularly those that have some kind of environmental dimension to them. Mm -hmm. So um, about 1990, right, as I was graduating from, uh, with a PhD from the University of Southern California in social ethics, um, I had been paying attention for a number of years at that point to the so-called radical environmental movement mm -hmm. and had uh, a pretty clear impression that there was something deeply spiritual to what was motivating most of the people in it, having uh, found their publications. Mm -hmm. And so I set out to uh, meet those folks, went to the woods actually in uh, northern Wisconsin uh, to a gathering there shortly after I secured my first academic position, mm -hmm. um, immediately recognized that uh, they were asking a lot of important questions, that there was a deep spirituality animating those folks, and I en I've ended up uh, spending a good part of the last uh, two decades keeping track of, of folks in the movement, in those movements, and their religious and political dimensions, mm -hmm. uh, the, the influences um, of such movements around the world. A few years after I began that research, I uh, edited a book called Ecological Resistance Movements, The Global Emergence of Radical and Popular Environmentalism. And in that book, we tried to get at the question, if there is such a thing as radical environmentalism outside of North America, what does it look like? Hmm. Does it have continuities or discontinuities with mm -hmm. the forms that people in North America who are paying attention to such things would be familiar with? Um, we found both significant continuities as well as some discontinuities, hmm. but this, all of this work in the early 90s convinced me that the, the effort to create sustainable life, livelihoods and life ways might well be connected to the affective and spiritual relationships that people have with nature. Mm -hmm. And I increasingly made that the centerpiece of my overall research trajectory. Hmm. That's in part what led to the Encyclopedia of Religion and Nature, because mm -hmm. I thought it was important to, on the one hand, uh, come to terms with what we knew about human nature relationships and their spiritual dimensions around the world as of around the turn of the century, but also I hope to catalyze new research into those relationships, which we did not only with the encyclopedia, but in the subsequent journal for the study of religion, nature, mm -hmm. and culture, which, as you know, we've been publishing since uh, 2007. Yeah. Now, I became very interested in the echoes, we might say, of the radical environmentalism uh, the radical environmental movement, as well as the tributaries to it through this process. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the line, began to realize that the story that I really wanted to pay attention to certainly included those movements, but was much wider and deeper. Yeah. And it went across diverse chronological timeframes, um, geographical regions, and might well be presaging some very important developments in human cultural evolution. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's coming to terms with all of that that yeah. uh, I attempted to do in the, my latest book, Dark Green Religion, Nature, Spirituality, and the Planetary Future. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, and I would say, I mean, not being an academic myself, but certainly liking talking to them, the ones that I know. I mean, it's, it reads to me like a very fair... Uh, portrayal of all the different strands i mean you've got surfers religion you've got you know elf the envir uh, environmental liberation front you've got movies you've got all kinds of stuff in here and just you know tracing the strands without getting into this is bad and will certainly destroy human society or this is good and the only way forward and you know any of that judgment stuff i thought it was a really well balanced just portrayal like a snapshot of everything going on well, I, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I, I work really hard to um, provide fair-minded, non-judgmental, critical analysis of a wide spectrum of social phenomena in, in this book and, yeah. and in my writing in general. And I also try to take seriously those who criticize the various individuals and groups 
that I analyze in the book to yeah. present their concerns, uh, even their fears, in a way that is uh, is not hostile to those. I, I'm really trying to understand, first and foremost, these phenomena uh, in and of themselves. What what do folks in these movements think, believe, and perceive? Yeah. And to do that without uh, without judgment. That said, I think, as you notice, t- toward the end of the book, I do um, make some suggestions about the parts that I, over the years, have tended to find uh, more compelling than others. Right. And I do address the question of whether these movements, these diverse movements that I talk about in the book, which some consider to be politically, uh, socially, or even spiritually perilous, whether in fact they are something to be feared, or um, whether they might actually presage something positive. So I do do go there. But the, the premium throughout the work is to present the phenomena in such a way that people can really come to their own conclusions mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, as you're talking, I'm just remembering, uh, you know James Watt, remember James, the uh, Secretary sure. of the Interior under uh, President Reagan, uh, you know, famous fundamentalist Christian, really basically hated environmentalists. But I remember mm-hmm. one interview he gave uh, after his term, I think he was booted out because he was just too egregious for people to mm-hmm. deal with. Mm-hmm. But uh, afterwards, somebody asked him what his worst fear about environmentalists was. You know, what's your worst fear about who they are and what they want to do? And he said, well, my worst fear about them is that they're all pagans. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, he had some reason to fear there, I guess, because <laughs> it does seem like the wanting to preserve nature and this this bioregion or this park or this watershed is so closely linked these days. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of somebody that I know or have met who has a strong environmental ethic without deriving some sense of spiritual connection to the land that they are working for. That's hard to do. Well, I think it's very hard to do, and I think that folks who have conventional religious beliefs um, do have something to fear in the sense that these spiritualities of belonging and connection to nature are growing rapidly and Mm -hmm. spreading around the world, they're exercising increasing influence. For the most part, they cohere with an evolutionary ecological worldview, which means that in a very, uh, in both a literal and a metaphorical sense, they're sensible. They are based in our senses, not upon the um, some kind of divine revelation that supposedly someone had uh, centuries ago. Right. Um, and some would say, therefore, they're sensible because they're based on on our senses. And, and if they're based on our senses, then it's not surprising that they would be gaining some traction uh, culturally around the world mm-hmm. because then the perceptions that they involve are available to everybody. Right. They're not available only to people who um, somehow have the ability to perceive that there are gods above and beyond the world somehow, Mm -hmm. for example. Now, as you know, in the book, I talk about diverse forms of of this so-called dark green religion that has something to do with uh, the natural world as perceived as being sacred. They generally have um, deep beliefs in the intrinsic value of all life that not just human beings matter. Right. Um, and we find a great deal of diversity within within such traditions, in, including some forms of such spirituality that resembles conventional religions. Right. In other words, some people in these movements do believe and perceive that there's a divine dimension to uh, non-human um, phenomena. Perhaps uh, we might call these anim- animistic spiritualities. Right. Or, the belief that the world is uh, full of spiritual intelligences, or maybe uh, 
a religion, a conventional religion resembling belief that the biosphere is like God yeah. or a God that is some sort of superordinate intelligence uh, in the biosphere or in the universe that's sort of orchestrating everything. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, we have those for whom their connection to non-human beings, to, to non-human living things, or their sense of belonging and connection to the biosphere and the universe in general is entirely naturalistic, right. independent of uh, anything that re really resembles a conventional religious metaphysics. Yeah. And so within that broad uh, spectrum of dark green spiritualities, there's a lot of room for different sorts of movements and different sorts of perceptions and different sorts of individuals mm -hmm. getting involved. And one reason it's, it, it ha this, this sort of phenomena hasn't been as widely understood as, as it's often understood by people in the movements themselves is that we have um, a kind of template for understanding um, religion yeah. that's based on largely on the Abrahamic traditions, mm -hmm. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so if, if something doesn't resemble those sorts of organized religions, we think, well, it's not really religion. It's yeah. something else. Maybe it's maybe we'll call this stuff spiritual, but right. not religious. And we know that's quite common. Right. Yes. But what I try to get at in the book is, is that there's, just as conventional religions have gurus and saints, Environment-focused religion has its spiritual leaders, mm -hmm. its uh, promoters, its, mm -hmm. its authors, its poets, its musicians. All sorts of artists are involved in this kind of thing. Right. It also has institutions that uh, express its spiritual and ethical sentiments. These can be seen in uh, all sorts of different ways, from museums to um, uh, documentaries um, to educational institutions of all sorts. So there's uh, to radio programs for that right. matter. Um, uh, certainly, all the various ways in which countercultural ideas are expressed mm -hmm. uh, provide avenues for the expression, the growth, the dissemination, the promotion of of what I'm calling dark yeah. green religion. You are listening to KOWS LP Occidental. Uh, this is Dream Talk Radio. I'm Ann Hill, your host, talking with Braun Taylor, who is the author most recently of Dark Green Religion, Nature, Spirituality, and the Planetary Future. Um, Braun, one of the things that, you know, you were mentioning the Abrahamic traditions, the Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and one of the things, I mean, you know, I, you're writing about a subject that alternately inspires me and drives me absolutely crazy. And, you know, partly I think that's because of what I call sloppy thinking, you mm -hmm. know, some uh, and coming out of, I guess I was studying environmental studies right when Carolyn Merchant's book, The Death of Nature, came out. So there sure. was second wave feminism. There was, you know, the mm -hmm. patriarchal version of history. There was the and then there was the sense of we have, you know, once there was a paradise, then we destroyed it. Now we have to build it back up. And the thing that that I see most strongly that I just want to throttle people in in the, you know, the, the nature spirituality or the pagan spirituality movement is that we are still so unconsciously attached or maybe even consciously attached to the idea of a, a spiritual narrative that that goes into this, you know, uh, paradise, fall and then redemption model. It's very difficult to talk to anybody. And you do lay this out in your book to talk to anybody involved in nature spirituality who doesn't either go straight to apocalypse like, yeah, well, you know, the amoebas will survive or else have this idea of, yes, we all have to just, you know, tune into nature with our little tuning forks and then we will, you know, recreate a paradise. How do you, I mean, in, you, in your experience, how do you grapple with that and make people see that it doesn't really have to be completely black and white? That's a great question. Um, I think the first just general comment that I would have is um, this very narrative that you've identified um, you can see how deep the roots of it are. Oh, man, it's really I mean, deep. It has been um, thousands of years, literally, that, yeah. that people in, uh, certainly in the West, have this kind of um, 
you know, myth of the primordial fall and mm-hmm. so forth, and and the hope for an eventual uh, redemption, either in some otherworldly state or for mm-hmm. the the nature religionists, uh, a more this-worldly reharmonization of life on Earth. Yeah. So let, let's see. Let's unpack this a little bit. I mean, on the one hand, um, there's been some interesting um, thinking about what these biblical narratives of the fall, in fact, represent. Mm-hmm. And I'm not quite sure that I accept this or know enough to to make a firm conclusion. But one possibility is, I mean, you have this idea of there's been a fall from a a a, 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 a paradise, really, right. where all people had to do is walk around, uh, enjoy life, and and uh, harvest whatever nature was naturally providing. Yeah. Now, people have called this a garden, but there was really no gardening. So mm-hmm. it really wasn't a gardening, a garden. <laughs> it was more of a foraging paradise, right? right? So, so here you have perhaps a kind of primordial memory of a period where uh, life was good, full of leisure, and you could just, uh, without a whole lot of your weekly time, gather what you needed for subsistence. Right. Well, then what happened? Um, well, uh, in, in the inherited narrative, narrative, people screwed up and they were expelled from this foraging paradise. Mm-hmm. And what'd they get then? Well, they got agriculture. So some folks think that what you have here is a kind of an odd romantic view of, of a foraging life before the hard work and toil of agriculture, mm-hmm. written, oddly, uh, oddly enough, from the perspective of the agriculturalists, which yes. had some kind of cultural, deep cultural memory of what they've lost or nostalgia for yeah. what they've lost. Now, within that narrative, you might imagine that it would be awfully nice to figure out a way back to uh, a place of uh, right. to life ways and livelihoods that had to do that had a lot of leisure involved and yeah. didn't require a lot of toil uh, for one's sustenance. So these are powerful myths, and indeed, there's some kind of parallel between that story and what we know scientifically about the last 10,000 years, mm-hmm. what followed the advent of agriculture, the domestication of plant and animal species. And what did follow? Well, uh, we went from a world that was exceptionally diverse bioculturally to a world that is uh, that has, I would say, suffered a great deal of biocultural simplification. Mm-hmm. As agriculture spread around the world, they either violently or nonviolently converted ecosystems and existing human cultures into something, uh, well, into agricultures, yeah. into into being, you know societies that are agriculturally involved and. And dependent. But then, you, I mean, you also have it extending, oh, now these were a peaceful agrarian people that had their little Neolithic or whatever period it is, you know, farms and the little circular things. And then they were invaded by the mean conquerors who were basically herders. I mean, so, you know. Well, it's obviously to that that form of the story is yeah. obviously to um, is uh, simplistic. Yeah. And, and this is where I think. The the most promising strands of what I'm calling dark mm-hmm. green spirituality are drawing um, increasingly and heavily on what we know about human beings and their relationships with nature over time through the scientific uh, record. Yeah. So when we begin to understand human beings as biocultural creatures, one first, you know, of course, as animals that right. evolved and came to be who they are in precisely the same way that everything else came to be the way it is through this uh, eon-long uh, struggle for existence, mm-hmm. uh, we start to get over some of the uh, romantic ideas and the naivete that has sometimes characterized some of these early attempts to understand the story in a more critical way. Yeah. So I think we can kind of look back at some of these these uh, these early critical efforts, and we can say, well, there were some insights there. Some of that was yeah. valuable. Yeah. 
But what I find increasingly valuable is to is to keep thinking about ourselves as biocultural beings. I mean, we are evolutionary creatures, and yet we're also cultural creatures, and we are at least among the few uh, animals on Earth that have culture, mm-hmm. and whose cultures make a big difference in the way that the world um, evolves. Yeah. So, so not only are we evolutionary beings, but we, our cultures are an aspect of uh, the, biologic, the biological evolution of the planet. Mm-hmm. Now, when we begin to understand this, this, this idea of biocultural evolution and that we've been wrapped up in it for a long time, that actually begins to open up all sorts of, at least in my view, all sorts of interesting horizons to us. On the one hand, we can look back and we can we can look back uh, at our follies and foibles and obvious mistakes in the past. Right. And we can note the places where we learned more adaptive behaviors through our mistakes, and we can kind of honor those, and we can you know, kind of be easy on ourselves. Well, weren't we silly back then? Or, mm-hmm. you know, right. uh, we can sort of recognize the, the, the steep learning curve that as a species we've had. And then we can also look more, more recently at some of the uh, maladaptive behaviors that have characterized our species. Yeah. And there are uh, very many. And we can both criticize them as by recognizing that they're maladaptive, that they that they're not good for the well for our own well-being, nor are they good for the well-being of the rest of the, yeah. the ecosystems on Earth. And one of the reasons they're not good for our own well-being is that they're not good for the rest of the ecosystems on mm-hmm. Earth upon which we depend. Right. And once we recognize that, and once we own the fact that we're biocultural creatures, we can begin to more self-consciously. Uh, recognize that we have a responsibility as also also as ethical beings and as creatures who can both learn from our mistakes and uh, make reasonable predictions about the the effect of our behaviors and we can begin to modify those in a way that um, that can benefit our own species and and that of others mm-hmm. so I think we're we're at the we're at some of the early stages of that sort of recognition of who we are. Now, as you know from the book, I emphasize the the, the period of time after doing some historical work yeah. since the publication of On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, right. which is you know 150 years old now. Yeah. And I suggest that really everything has begun to change dramatically since. Uh, the publication of that work, um, we now understand a lot more about who we really are. Mm-hmm. And it's that understanding that is beginning to re- recalibrate the way we understand our sense of uh, who we are and where we belong. Yeah. So in- increasingly, we have these spiritual forms where the premium is is on understanding ourselves as earthlings who belong here and our spiritualities are that of belonging to this biosphere not to some uh, envisioned other place which we uh, if we're paying attention and have anything like a scientific worldview uh, we would be um, very skeptical about the existence of Mm -hmm. of such um, Mm -hmm. otherworldly places yeah, I found. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You, go ahead. No, no. Please. Well, I found the 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 earlier part of your book about you tracing the history of the the strands of thought really interesting because uh, I mean you go back to basically 17th 18th century thinking mm-hmm. and uh, talk about some of the main writers and influencers and I had always understood or maybe I I was just it was explained to me at some point that uh, pagan religion nature spirituality 
comes, it, it's still sort of grappling with this duality between the Enlightenment and the Romantic period, you know, Enlightenment and Romanticism. So you know, the one is sort of like, oh, wait, we can see these things, uh, you know, we can hypothesize and then we can test and, you know, this sort of scientific way to achieve uh, understanding of how systems work versus the sort of gestalt of nature is beautiful and those sort of warring uh, ways of looking at the natural world. But one thing that really uh, struck me in that part of your book is how you say, well, actually, some of these guys were both. You know, exactly. Burke and Rousseau were uh, Enlightenment thinkers, and they also had this uh, this this romantic attachment. Or So maybe you can flesh that out a little bit, because that was a new piece for me. Well, it, it, it's a great thing to, to point out, um, as you're doing here. Um, in part, what I'm doing is I'm working against a very dualistic narrative yeah. that some scholars have articulated and have um, had significant influence. You know, enlightenment bad, uh, right. romanticism good um, is, is one way in which that, that story is, mm -hmm. is spun. But the fact is that people who take, that many people who take a very, uh, or we might say, enlightenment perspective, or who are very much informed by a modern scientific method end up with the same sense of awe and mystery yeah. uh, in the universe that those who have uh, attachments to specific places and non-human organisms through, through their experiences in natural habitats might have. Mm -hmm. So... In the effort to understand our predicaments, people have voiced uh, a wide variety of critical perspectives, and most of those um, that have gained traction in environmental communities, they have some um, they have some good points to make, and they have some insights. But the some of these uh, scholarly narratives have really been kind of Manichaean. They've been, uh -huh. but yes. by which I mean dualistic. Right. Uh, they've they've oversimplified the story tremendously. And and here's the negative side about that. Here's the pernicious side of it: mm -hmm. is that um, they they present a story that makes it exceptionally difficult for people who are coming from very different places on the cultural landscape to come together and to recognize that they share a love uh, of nature yeah. and a, even a reverence for it and a desire to uh, protect the genetic and species variety of a planet that in their own ways they would all agree is uh, miraculous. Right. So, it's so I think that one of the things that has gratified me is when you have an anthropologist like uh, Eugene Anderson mm -hmm. from, from UC Riverside praise the book and say what this really helps to do is to um, awaken us to the deep Western cultural roots, mm -hmm. to a love for reverence for and and for the protection of of the natural world yeah. and understanding our place in it, and and I think that's quite right. I mean the part of the attempt to understand where we went wrong in green subcultures has been to blame Western culture mm -hmm. and certainly Western religion philosophy and uh, almost always Western science as kind of the, the boogeyman of the contemporary environmental uh, calamity. Right. Um, and then in its place is often offered um, the wisdom of religions that originated in Asia or uh, indigenous religions wherever right. they reside. Right. The, the problem with that is that, that it's just uh, a gross oversimplification in almost every direction you can think of, yeah. <laughs> right? That's right. So um, the fact is that within the diverse cultures uh, on the planet, East and West, uh, indigenous and non-indigenous, uh, scientific and what we might call traditional knowledge-based, there's always been folks who more than others in their subcultures have felt a deep sense of wonder, awe, uh, connection, uh, uh, an aesthetic appreciation for 
um, the the wider natural world that they're inhabiting. Yeah. And I think a part of the uh, what I hope is a part of the contribution of my book is sort of uh, acknowledging how incredibly diverse around the world these sorts of perceptions are. Mm-hmm. And as you know, toward the end of the book, I play with the possibility that if we at least begin to think medium and if not very long term, it's possible to conceive of a f- uh, forms of spirituality that have a certain kind of common denominator yeah. of, of um, reverence um, for for life on the planet in a way that we we, we really don't currently uh, see as dominating the, the current mm-hmm. uh, historical moment here. Right. You are listening to Dream Talk Radio here on COWS. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and uh, this morning I've been talking with Bron Taylor, whose uh, most recent book is Dark Green Religion, Nature, Spirituality, and the Planetary Future. Uh, the People can get in touch with you or find out more about the book at brontaylor.com. Is that correct? I think that's Absolutely. The, yeah, my email's there, and email, yeah. pretty easy to find. All that sort of thing. Um, the, I guess the other thing that this started me thinking about, you know, I was reading it partly while I was up in British Columbia this past week, uh, teaching at a reclaiming camp, and Mm -hmm. uh, it was really interesting to see. I I had been kind of out of the loop with a lot of the ways people were... um, were conceiving of and working with this idea of of getting closer to nature. There was this one uh, friend of mine, actually, who was teaching, her whole week was teaching about the earth path, basically listening to the land as a way to receive knowledge. Mm-hmm. And you know, her so her whole thing was you know just stripping away those things that that keep us from that sort of direct. Uh, experiential relationship with the earth and and I was teasing her and I said oh you mean you're teaching the poverty path right you're teaching <laughs> the the barefoot and pregnant path right I mean you know <laughs> there's this idea I, and really what I was trying to critique was this idea that I hear more and more and, and it's sort of baffling and also infuriating to me that somehow all we need to do is just tune into the land and we'll know everything like just because powers of observation you can you know, you can find out about herbs and berries and roots and whatnot but i just thought no actually you actually do need education i mean you need to know how to yeah, read right. you know you need to know how to think critically it's not and so that to me is seems like one of the more dangerous routes that uh, nature spirituality green dark green religion can go is this idea that all we need is the land. I mean, that's just not true. We're ineffective as citizens in this planetary future if all we know is the land. We're disenfranchising ourselves. Well, um, there's there's a whole bunch of... I mean, when you look at these, these subcultures, there's a great deal of ferment within them, a whole bunch of... a, a lot of creativity, a lot of um, new forms of uh, spiritual... Uh, production, new forms of ritualizing, and um, we're really seeing this at a kind of an early and a nascent stage. When I think about this as a a, um, social scientist and as something of a historian, I think this is really a a unique opportunity we have to be watching the ferment as uh, kind of new forms of spirituality emerge. Mm -hmm. um, So one thing that's kind of helpful as as I watch this this going on is is that I know that at least if you think really long term, the forms, the cultural forms that that will necessarily survive are the ones that at least are not negative toward and more likely are synergistic with the flourishing of the habitats that that our species depend on. In other words, they must be adaptive. So, So that's one way I look at, at what you're talking about. Another way I look at, at this kind of thing is, is to try to, um, and I very much agree with you about the, the need for a, a broader kind of educational framework for this. And, and for me, uh, increasingly, the framework is an evolutionary ecological worldview. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that give us in, in these mm-hmm. sorts of cases as we look at this kind of uh, 
creative process. Well, the first thing I think that what we might call the uh, the best of the dark green spiritual movements recognize yeah. is that human beings have continuity with all of the other life forms. We all came to be the same, as I said before, came to be who we are in precisely the same way as all the other organisms. Now, this leads to both a kind of empirical and ethical payoff. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, this naturally leads, as it did for Darwin, for uh, to a sense of empathy with all of the other individual organisms and life forms yeah. that are struggling to get by here. Mm -hmm. So we can, by extension, we can empathize with their process and uh, and their struggles. And through such empathy as moral beings, we can say, you know, to the extent that we can, um, we can help. And certainly to the extent that we can, we cannot needlessly hinder their struggle for existence. Mm -hmm. So there's a kinship ethics that actually flows from that evolutionary and ecological understanding. So that's critical. Yeah. A second critical thing is that when we understand that uh, that process, we also understand that we're not exceptional. Right. We're subject to nature's laws just like all the other living things here are. Mm -hmm. Now that's, in my judgment, perhaps the most important insight that we can derive from this evolutionary ecological mm -hmm. worldview. And subsidiary to that, and, and sort of the, the next thing that we have to understand, is that because we're not exceptional, we're subject to the to these same laws, the most important law for us to recognize is that, is that of caring capacity. Mm. All organisms are subject to the caring capacity of the habitats upon which they depend. And generally speaking, what living things do is if, if they're successful at reproducing, they will reproduce until one of two things happens. They either uh, produce so much waste that, that their numbers become reduced because they're kind of uh, choking on it, or they produce so robustly that they don't have enough calories to maintain the current numbers of organisms that they have, that they have produced. Yeah. And so as they produce more and more of themselves, they their bodies um, become stressed. It becomes more difficult to reproduce. Or worse, they suffer extreme malnutrition and, and might uh, even die. So if we understood that, we, that there's uh, no escaping the laws of nature, yeah. and that we're subject to them just like all the organi other organisms are, then we can realize that our own flourishing as a species requires either voluntarily or involuntarily that there be fewer of us than there currently are, if we mm -hmm. understand caring capacity, um, and that we ought to, as in as humane a way as we can, reduce the total numbers of us so that not only we can flourish, but that right. all the other um, ecosystems and living things on the planet can flourish as well. Yeah. So it's quite possible to integrate into a, a kind of new spirituality of nature a radical appreciation for the, for the facts of the matter, we might say, mm -hmm. you know, what it takes to, uh, to be here and to flourish. And I think that's what a great deal of this this kind of dark green religion that I'm talking about is is moving toward, even if there's also a significant amount of it that has yet to drink as deeply of this evolutionary uh, ecological worldview as I certainly have come yes. to and think is important. Right. For instance, you talk a lot about the difference between dark green religion and the greening of traditional religions, Christianity, uh, Islam, etc., and one of the things that really strikes me with what you were just saying is is this idea that we are not exceptional as being one of the, the, the key points of uh, this evolutionary um, framework. Well, that, that, that flies directly in the face of the really what I consider the most dangerous movement in politics in the U.S. right now, which is this idea still 
amazingly still that humans are you know the 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 highest species in some way that that we uh, um, you know it's the fundamentalist humans are not animals basically that we're not with denying evolution that whole thing is just so strong and that that at the same time, those folks that are just like blasting that out have this sense of, you know, it, it really, uh, to me, goes right along with reproductive rights. Because if you're talking about carrying capacity, the first thing you do is allow family planning to be freely available. And you allow education about fertility. And so, <laughs> you know, I'm wondering, gee, who else can we get jump on the bandwagon to fight this insane, insidious uh, you know, anti-choice fervor that's, you know, basically they're murdering people to, uh, to uh, you know, prevent women from having control of their own fertility. And that just seems like it's a direct, uh, directly related to a lot of these points that you're talking about. And I feel so stymied uh, politically, you know, personally as to how to how to counteract that other than just the sort of long-term educational uh we are in kinship with everything you know evolutionary view but that seems like a really long-term project well it 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 is a long project what i take some comfort in is that this when you look at how long it take it has taken most um um conventional religions to um emerge and gain traction and spread it's it's usually uh well it's it, it's it's a long time and this worldview that we're talking about um has to confront and overcome a lot of these worldviews yeah. that emerged thousands of years ago if it's going to really uh decisively inform human behavior mm -hmm. It's been a very short period of time that this kind of worldview has been has been spreading, and now there's institutions, educational institutions, um, communicative uh, technologies, and so forth that make it possible for these sorts of views to spread more rapidly in a global sense than ever mm -hmm. before. So mm -hmm. it's still pretty early in the game. Yeah. Uh, I certainly share your um, your concern and passion about this, and I think part of part of the the Part of the difficulty is uh, and, and need is to identify that most traditional worldview systems have been um, deeply pronatalist. In other words, yeah. they tended to promote um, human births at 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 almost any cost. Right. And a part of that's just uh, understandable based on uh, ignorance. A part of it's certainly understandable uh, as well from an evolutionary perspective because. Uh, for a very long time, the way that uh, all sorts of, well, oh, shoot, we're not exceptional. I mean, there's all mm -hmm. sorts of uh, very creative ways that organisms put out lots of progeny in the hopes that some are going to survive. Right. So uh, human beings have been very good at that. We've um, rapidly populated the world because we're very good at breeding. But now we we are basically in a situation where we can elect to intelligently pull back from a kind of pronatalist uh, religious ideology mm -hmm. to a a religious uh, or spiritual sense of humility where we kind of say, well, you know, we're pretty cool creatures, and we are. We're very creative and yeah. interesting and uh, uh, sometimes brilliant, but, we, uh, but we're not the only organisms that matter here, and we can have a whole lot better time, a whole lot better ride here if... Um, if we were to sort of uh, humbly retreat in terms of our our total numbers, yeah. we're seeing increasing increasing voices like this. But there's a, a deep global cultural struggle over this, as you mm -hmm. well know. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think that's a that would be a useful framework. I mean, you do talk about the ways in which um, dark green religion has been accused of misanthropy, basically. Oh, well, you you just want to kill off people just to the planet but I think it can be done intelligently and just saying listen there is a carrying capacity we're not going to restrict all women to have one live child but we're not going to be China but we can have reproductive rights at the forefront of our platform you know well, this is a way to yeah, yeah. go ahead well here's here's the thing here's an important way to respond to some of this stuff 
if we understand what the current situation really is, um, the the compassionate thing to do for human beings, if if we're anthropocentric, human-centered in our value systems, even if we think that only human beings ultimately have moral worth, mm-hmm. if we're concerned about them, then the the best possible thing we can do for them is to um, is to restrict the total numbers of them because the fact is that and we can see this all over the world the more of us we are in in places that are environmentally stressed the more suffering there is Mm -hmm. now if we also have concern and care about other living things then the case just becomes uh, all the all the stronger because the fact is that the growing human numbers are are not only causing human suffering we're causing directly the extinction of all sorts of other organisms and the widespread retreat of, of, pop, of uh, the majority of, of many specific species so that even those that may not be technically endangered right now yeah. uh, are only populating a, a very small part of their original range, which might eventually lead to their, uh, to their demise. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to frame that. Uh, we have been talking with Bron Taylor, the author of Dark Green Religion, Nature, Spirituality, and the Planetary Future here on Dream Talk Radio. It's been a fascinating conversation. I want to uh, uh, I think this book is available locally at bookstores. If not, it's on Amazon. You can go to brontaylor.com. That's B R O N T A Y L O R.com. Um, is there anything you would like to let people know about, uh, events coming up, other projects you've got in the pipeline? Well, um, at my website, I, I keep track of uh, upcoming appearances. I'll be okay. in New York City in a couple weeks for, for just one example. Let me also invite listeners um, to to the website to check out the complimentary or the supplementary materials there. Right. One of the things that you can't do in a book is you can't um, – play music or show videos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and actually, the arts are so important in the phenomena I discuss in the book that I, um, it, it's sad that you can't do that in a book. Yeah. So I'm, I've put complimentary materials up there uh, and we'll keep doing that. The other thing I say in the book is that I can't speak about all the examples of dark green spirituality that are out there. And mm-hmm. if, if I'm onto something, you will have many of your own examples that you can recognize. Right. And so I invite people to be in touch with me with their own examples. There's now a Facebook page mm-hmm. that, that's devoted to discussing dark green religion. And I welcome uh, listeners to to be in touch, to put up their own examples. Um, I suspect there's, uh, oh, well, in the fact is that there's interest in a documentary based oh, on the book that I'm exploring right now. So there, there will be more about all this, yeah. I'm sure. Fabulous. Um, well, Bron Taylor, thanks so much for being on Dream Talk Radio this morning. Um, I will go to your Facebook page when I go home. <laughs> all right. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. You're welcome. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That ends this week's Dream Talk Radio Show podcast. Thanks for listening, and remember to tune in every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. at www.kows.fm. This is Ann Hill, and I'll see you again next week.